If you join me in following God's Word by opening to the book of Colossians, in approximately the middle of the New Testament, a little past, a little beyond the middle, I guess, the letter of Colossians comes after Philippians, if that helps you at all, before Thessalonians, small letter of Paul, but full of wonderful things. I'm reading in the midst of Paul's dialogue there in chapter 2, and I'm going to read a passage that relates to our understanding of the subject of baptism as I address that subject for the second time here today as to complete something I started, I hope, last week. Certainly, as we think on this subject, I would say to you as a pastor of Presbyterian churches for a long time, it's it's interesting to me how many people come and are attracted to our church or want to join for one reason or another. And I would say if there is any subject that we, we would know is going to be a sticking point for some people. They come to us and they say, well, I appreciate just about everything your church is about, but I'll never agree with you about that infant baptism stuff. Well, guess what? We love you anyway. <laughs> and... Uh, We truly do, and we truly welcome you to our membership. This is not a fighting subject for us, and I'm not doing combat today. I am, though, trying to open God's Word and trying to help you understand the thinking we have and the place that we think baptism appropriately takes when it's applied to the child of a believer. We talked about it just a little last week and get into it more today. Listen as I read first this portion of Colossians chapter 2. Paul writes, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In Him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. May God put his blessing on our understanding of this, his own holy word. It took place not that long ago in the halls of our church, as it often does, as a young lady showed me her hand, and I saw on the third finger of the left hand a gleaming diamond that was not there a week or more earlier. Now, I'm not the brightest guy in the world, but I was shrewd enough to understand the meaning of that diamond. It represented a promise. It represented a promise from a young man who had asked her to share his life, and a wedding was anticipated, as you would well understand. The engagement diamond is something that is universally understood 
as the sign of a covenant pledge between two human beings. And we believe Jesus gave His church a similar precious symbol that visually depicts our being cleansed from sin by the unmerited grace of God when we trust in Christ crucified. The symbol does not accomplish what it signifies, and yet it is a powerful sign, and that symbol is water baptism. Last week, I began these two parts looking in a more general way at a survey of baptism to bring out some foundational points, and I'll review that in two minutes or less. We saw that Jesus Himself commanded that disciples be baptized, so it's not something we should just ignore or say that doesn't matter. He commanded it, and that's our Lord speaking. And then I pointed out that no matter what your denominational or particular angle on understanding the the particular ways of practicing baptism or who should receive it, all of us from the Baptist to the Presbyterian and everybody else actually learn what we learn about baptism from indirect clues or indirect inferences in Scripture because none of us really have an, an explicit instruction manual that says, do it this way. Now, some may think their way is more directly taught than others, but when it comes down to it, all the particulars really are derived from rather indirect kinds of things. Now, that doesn't mean nothing is taught, but it just means that the case is one that has to be assembled carefully, and we cannot simply say, here's the verse that clinches it all. And then I asserted several things that we know cannot possibly be true about baptism if it's understood in a biblical fashion or in the big picture of the Bible itself. First, that baptism is neither essential to salvation nor is it the instrument of salvation. And that's the biggest denial that we always have to make because for many in a superstitious fashion, it is. They do think it is some kind of an instrument of salvation. We say, show me that from the Scripture. You'll have a hard time. Secondly, it's not a merit badge that proclaims what you've done. You haven't arrived at a certain point that you say, now I wear this badge, and, and implicitly, is it not a good thing that I've reached this point? Thirdly, it never certifies or guarantees that the person who has been baptized, whether an infant or an adult, is eternally redeemed because you can be baptized and turn your back on God. Now, let's go on. And I want to deal today with our practice of the baptism of the children of believers. Make sure you understood that. We don't indiscriminately baptize all children. We baptize the children of professing believers. One or more parent must be one who stands before God and confesses Jesus Christ. Every once in a while I have what for me is is a no-win phone call. When someone calls me up, and explains, well, once upon a time I went to a Presbyterian church. I don't go to your church. In fact, I don't go to any church. But now I've had a baby, and my mother says, when are we going to get it baptized? Could I bring my baby for you to baptize? That puts me in a difficult position because what we're looking for there is a rent-a-sacrament. That's what I call it. 
It doesn't mean too much to that person. They're probably doing it to please a family member or to fulfill some kind of tradition. And I have to gently say to that person, we would be delighted for you to participate in the worship of our church, allow us to know you. And if you know Christ in your life and profess him, once we can understand that and know you, we'd be glad to move to that next point. Well, I've been hung up on in that phone call because they didn't get the answer they wanted. But we don't simply baptize children for the sake of baptizing children. We're not bestowing any benefit on that child if it's simply a ritual of an empty nature that someone wants to fulfill. I want to review here why we do this. We think it's biblical, but it requires getting a big picture. As I said, there's no single verse. Sometimes people throw it at us. They say, oh, you folks, show me the verse that proves you should do that. Well, we can't. Neither can you show me the verse that baptism should be believers only and immersion only. So we're all on an equal footing. Let's be humble about it. What we need to do is look at a wide-angle view of some things and back up and get a foundation under us. If it's your goal to grow roses in your yard, you can go out and get rose bushes at the nursery, and you'll come home, and I hope you'll do a little reading or get some good advice, because if you're going to see nice roses growing, I can tell you this, you're going to have to first take care of the roots and have the right soil there and see that that bush is nourished and cultivated and pruned and so on in a right manner, then you can think about roses. That's the way it is with baptism. You have to back up and think about the roots of where this comes from. That's what we're going to do even before we get to the immediate text of Colossians 2 today. In the first place, we want to talk about how baptism is related to what we call the covenant of grace in the Bible and the signs that God gave for the covenant of grace. Now, what is the covenant of grace? You've probably heard the term covenant before. It was in our call to worship this morning that God said His covenant is everlasting, that He would never break it. What is that? Well, we look upon that as really a rather simple unifying spine of the whole Bible. God's covenant is simply that promise from the Lord God given early in the time of Abraham onward, and it's summarized in one sentence when God says, I will be your God, I, I will be your God and you shall be my people. It's really not hard when you just learn that one sentence. That's it. God is saying, I'm going to have a people in history, despite human sin, despite all the rejection of me and the rebellion against me, I'm going to have a people in history who love me and obey me, however imperfectly they do that. Nevertheless, they keep coming back and repenting and looking to me and the salvation that I offer. That's his covenant, his promise that he will have a people, and he will form that people for himself and bless them. Now, we find out that God knew this people from eternity past, and we're not going to get into the the thorny subject, that at least thorny for some people, of the idea of election and all of that, but that too is in the Bible. God knew this people. He knew who they were, and He calls them. And when He calls them, they will come to Him. They will confess Him and name the name of Christ, who is the Savior that He promised. Way back in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, we have a promise about the covenant. Jeremiah 32:38 says, They shall be my people. I will be their God. 
and I will give them one heart and one way so that they will fear me forever for their good and their children after them. I will make this everlasting covenant with them. This is God's determination, and he will not fail in it. He's determined to do it, to have a people who will praise him in eternity. Now, if you study the covenant, you see that it really begins to emerge in the time of Abraham in Genesis chapters 15 to 17 in particular. And the, the immediate object of the covenant was the children who would come from Abraham, who physically speaking and, and in terms of descendancy speaking, were the nation of Israel. But even there in those early times, God was saying, it isn't simply ethnic Israel that is my object. I will, I will bring a people to me through Israel. I'll use them as my vehicle to bless the whole world. Now, some people use another name for the covenant, and you may come from a church tradition where the term, the plan of salvation, is a more common term. I think that those churches that use that are really talking about the covenant. How does God save people? He saves people by determining that there will be those in history who will come to Him. He will give them the gift of faith, allow them to be drawn to Himself, and to look to His Savior. You say, that sounds like the New Testament if the Savior's involved. Well, it's also the Old Testament. Because people like Abraham and Moses and David trusted in God and looked for His Savior. They didn't know His name yet. They didn't know He'd be born in Bethlehem. There was a lot they didn't know, but they were looking for God to bring them a Savior. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, there's that great faith chapter that tells about Old Testament faith, and it says that Old Testament people were looking forward for someone they didn't know yet, trusting that God would provide him. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.26 that Moses accepted disgrace for the sake of of Christ when he sided with his Israelite slave friends. Moses accepted disgrace for the sake of Christ. Moses looked to Christ. David looked to Christ, and they were saved by that faith. The Scripture says Abraham was justified for his faith. He wasn't justified for keeping the Ten Commandments or something like that. They hadn't even been given yet, of course, by the way, in Abraham's time. He was justified because he had the same faith that God expects from everyone who belongs to his covenant. Now, to make a very long subject short, and I need to today, God in giving his covenant said, look, I know I'm dealing with sinful people, people with short memories, And so to help signify my covenant, I'm going to give it a couple of signs or physical representations, things that they can be aware of that will remind them in their experience that they belong to me. And in Genesis 17, we have the first of those when Abraham was commanded to have every male of his household, man and boy, circumcised. The flesh of the man's sexual organ was cut as a means of hygienic cleansing, but also to put a mark on that man and to set him apart from other men. And it's said in a sense, strange as the sign might seem, that this man is marked for God. He belongs to God. And he would be reminded of that, and so would any woman with whom he was intimate when she 
realize that this man is distinctive. He's different. He belongs to God. And one of the functions, by the way, was to remind Israelite men that they were not to intermarry with the daughters of idolaters, that they were to be separate and marry in the faith. Well, remarkably, and we could spend a lot of time developing that sort of strange sign, odd as it seems to us, God used that sign and forward in the New Testament in Romans 4.11, he called circumcision, as it occurred in the Old Testament, a seal of the righteousness of faith. It was a sign that pointed to faith somehow. Now, that didn't mean that an eight-day-old Israelite baby boy had faith in the Messiah, but he was marked with the sign that signified that faith is the way to receive God and the way to look to God and the only way that salvation would ever come to you. Now, there was another covenant sign, a primary one, and that was the Passover dinner. You might remember that from the book of Exodus, a meal to be celebrated that reminded the Israelites that God was the one who delivered them out of slavery. And there were certain things they were to go through with a a lamb that was to be killed in a particular way and eaten, reminding them that God was the deliverer of those who were enslaved to anything. Well, there's, those were the two great Old Testament covenant signs, circumcision and the Passover. Now, God promised in the Old Testament that His covenant was a lasting thing. He didn't intend to do away with it when the page was closed on the book of Malachi and there was a 400-year silence before the New Testament. He always intended that His covenant would move right on forward, and it did. It got a new look, of course, for Christ came and He, in the New Testament, is called the mediator of the covenant, the one who brings it to completion in his work on the cross, the one who actually did away with the older signs. He certainly did away with sacrifices by making a sacrifice of himself, but he also, we find, set aside the two main signs of circumcision in a physical manner for males only and the sign of the Passover meal. They both became different. Even though the covenant was operating, there would be new signs. We could study the concept of the covenant for a long time, and I know in a sense it's a little theoretical and abstract, and so we're going to go forward now. But I just quote a man named Pierre Marcel, a French theologian, who said, the doctrine of the covenant is the germ and the root and the pith of all revelation and theology because it is the very clue to the heart of God's redemption. I will be your God. You will be my people. So secondly, we think of how the covenant, how the cross, I mean, the cross opened up, broadened the covenant so that no longer was just ethnic Israel in view and no longer were those two signs, the same signs, the ones to look to. You see, we have a very unifying, powerful word in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 3, and Romans chapter 4. If you're a person who says, I cannot understand what the Old Testament has to do with the New Testament, I would encourage you strongly for one week, read and reread Galatians 3 and Romans 4. They say roughly the same things in somewhat different words. And they are great chapters that remind you and unify what God is doing in the entire Bible. Because both texts argue that Everyone who looks to Christ in faith is what God calls a true Israelite. 
a true member of this covenant people that he's gathering out of history. Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God, and this was counted to him for righteousness. And the implication is very clear. You can do that also. You don't have to be born as an, as an Israelite and trace your lineage through one of the 12 tribes. The Israel that matters is the Israel that looks in faith to this covenant God. And that means we Gentiles are just as much true children of Abraham if we trust in the salvation that God was promising from the beginning. Everyone who shares in Abraham's covenant faith belongs to the people of God who he's forming and gathering in history. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 says this, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is only outward in his flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Holy Spirit. So you see, God put that sort of strange ritual in place, but then said, look, it isn't the physical ritual that matters. I'm going to cut the heart. I'm going to cleanse the heart, and I do that for men and women alike. And you will belong to the covenant people of God, not by tracing your ancestry or having the right DNA in your, in your body and cells. You will belong to this covenant people of mine by having the faith that looks to my salvation as Abraham did. And so we find in the New Testament that the two covenant signs are rather naturally and, and without a lot of announcement translated into new forms. The Passover dinner was transformed, and you know how. It was transformed by the Lord himself on the night before he died and given a new significance as what we call the Lord's Supper. Still the covenant, but now a new and more universal expression of it as he called that supper the new covenant in my blood. Now, most Christians don't have any problem seeing that parallelism, the idea that Passover sort of merges right into or becomes in a replacement form the Lord's Supper. People have a greater difficulty grasping how we would say to them that circumcision is replaced by baptism as a covenant sign. They say, oh, you, you know, you guys are grasping at straws there. You're just trying to, to get something that, that fills your case. But I would say that the Bible does show that both circumcision and baptism are initiatory external signs which have the same significance. They signify an inward cleansing, a cleansing which is given by God himself. Now, you probably thought I wasn't going to get around to my text, but I'm finally there this morning. And I just deal with it rather briefly in the midst of, of what is a more topical treatment here. But Colossians 2, 11 and 12 is indeed the clearest place in the New Testament where we see the Scripture putting these two signs alongside each other. The actual act of circumcision and what it meant put alongside baptism and what it means. And Paul writes, in Christ you were circumcised. Spiritually, he means. You were spiritually circumcised by the cutting off of your sinful nature, not a circumcision done by the hands of men, but done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him by the power of God. Now, some people find this a very mysterious verse. They say, it sort of turns me around. I'm not sure what it's saying. Well, I can tell you the minimum that it's saying is this, that it is God who cleanses the heart. 
It's not accomplished by a physical act or by a ritual or a ceremony. And it is compared here, the act of God cutting your heart, cleansing your heart, is compared to the baptism that is given in the name of the Lord. Baptism symbolizes the death of your sin nature, just as circumcision once had that same symbolism. We need a miraculous heart transformation, and it is not conveyed by a ritual. It's not physically conveyed at all. It's a spiritual thing. But these symbolic acts that God ordains point to the meaning of it and point to the fact that it is God who must miraculously cleanse our hearts. Dr. R.C. Sproul's fairly well-known today to many of you, written many books. He said once, in the Old Testament, God ordered that there be a sign of faith to be applied to the children of Israelite households even before personal faith was present in the baby boy. Since that was clearly done, Sproul said, it would be erroneous to argue that a corresponding sign of faith cannot be administered today even before the believer's child shows faith. Now we are saying, and I hope I've said it clearly enough, enough times, many times, that baptism does not declare what is true about you. You see, that's one of the one of the points that we argue with our Baptist brothers, and they are our brothers, when they say, Well, it has to be meaningful to you when it happens. You have to be ready to say, I have trusted Jesus Christ. This is my declaration. This is my profession. And if it isn't meaningful to you, why do it? But We say no. When you have the covenant perspective, you see that the sign proclaims something even before it is personally meaningful to the person who is its recipient because it's testifying not about what is true of you, but but what the power of God will supernaturally accomplish as he and he alone brings salvation into a life. Well, that's the primary case. Let me just add to it a couple of other evidences that we bring in, and these are more secondary, I would say. The primary supporting pillar of our argument to baptize a believer's child is that principle of the covenant and the covenant sign of circumcision being replaced by baptism. But here's a couple of other things that come into the picture and help to reinforce it, I think, at least. As you, again, remember, we're talking about a lot of clues, and we pull these clues and we put them on the table and say, do they, do they form a case? Do they form something coherent or not? Well, one of these clues is what we saw last week in Acts 2, 38 and 39, when Peter responded on the day of Pentecost to the question, what shall we do? about Jesus who was crucified. This is an awful thing. We've participated in it. How do we respond to this? They were stricken in their hearts. They wanted to know, we're guilty of this thing. What shall we do before God for him to forgive us? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ. And he went right on to say that the promise, read covenant, covenant equals promise. The promise is for you and your children. Again, Peter was speaking covenant language here to people of an Israelite heritage who understood him that way, and they understood that they were expected to act as families. The head of the household responded to God, and he gathered his family and brought his family with him in his response to God. Did that save all those 
young ones in that family? No, it didn't. But that was the way they responded in a covenant situation as the heads of households making those decisions. Furthermore, in the New Testament, we have direct references, three explicit times, twice in Acts 16, one in uh, an early chapter of 1 Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians 1, where the baptism of entire households are mentioned without a great deal of fuss and bother. There's no drum roll about it, you know. We're about to baptize a household, all, everyone pay attention. No, it was just the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 came. He professed faith in Christ. He was told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And the text says, he and his house were baptized that night. It appears that the apostles who administered that baptism, it was Paul who was in that jail, Paul and Barnabas, they must have been the ones administering the baptism. It appears that they were following along in covenant behavior and bringing a sign to the whole household of the one who showed faith. And then thirdly, here's this bit of additional evidence that is really more evidence from history. And we regard evidence from history as less important than direct teaching from Scripture, but it does have some weight to it. We know that from the testimony of early church fathers that children of believers were being baptized from the early second century. That's the earliest that we have testimony about it. Onwards, right on through the centuries. And in fact, all the way from the second century right after the apostles, right up to the time of the Reformation, there was only the most minute and scattered of anyone ever rising up and saying, you shouldn't be doing this. The church was doing this, and they were doing it with a common assent for many centuries. And it was really the strongest dissent to it, of course, came in the 1500s in the beginning of the Reformation when those who we call the Anabaptists, the second, the rebaptizers, who felt that only adult believers should be baptized, came and raised their voices in a strong way against this. But before that, there was no heavy protest against this being done. And indeed, let us say in fairness to the Anabaptists, whose, whose influence, of course, affects our county and many of you in a family heritage way, that they were indeed protesting a church system where many people had come to take their baptism for granted and simply think that this was what counted to get me into the kingdom. I was baptized. That's all that needs to happen. That is wrong. And in that sense, the, the Anabaptists were protesting in a correct way, that to rely on a ritual or a sacrament is wrong. But again, you know, to make a bad pun, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Baptizing the believer's child, we believe, does have a biblical purpose when rightly understood. Let me say this in closing today. It's not a guarantee of the child's salvation, any more so then was the circumcision of an Israelite boy the guarantee? You can read what the book of Hebrews says, some, some things that, that have doom about them, that, that these circumcised Israelites, their bodies, it says, fell in the desert in, in unbelief. They died in unbelief. And you get a picture in your mind of like the bleached bones of, you know, a buffalo skull on the, on the Oregon Trail or something, that these people just fell in their tracks without God because they relied in their birthright or in some ritual, and that isn't what you should rely upon. There's a text that will help us with the meaning 
of baptism, and it's actually an odd text to bring into the picture, but it, it really does help. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. The subject isn't baptism there. The subject is marriage, of all things. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking about the situation of a Christian who is married to a non-Christian. Should that person stay with the non-believer? You assume they both were unbelievers and one has been converted and the tension arose. What should I do now? There's a, you know, there's a real tension in my home. Well, Paul argues that unless the unbeliever is the one who's going to leave and walk away from that relationship, you should stay with it. And in the course of giving that argument, he was saying there that that unsaved spouse was actually in a position of spiritual advantage. They aren't saved because of who they're married to, but they're in a position of spiritual advantage to be influenced by the gospel. And then he says this in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 7. If this were not true, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, there's a sentence that's subject to a lot of misunderstanding, isn't it? Does that say that the children of a one believer is a saved person? Is that what holy means? The answer is no. It can't mean that. It would be flying in the face of everything else about salvation in the New Testament. Holy means something else. It means set apart. It means set in a special category of recognition and advantage and privilege and access to the things of God. That's where the unbelieving spouse is. That's where the not yet believing child is. They're right next to the influence of the gospel. They're so close to the doorway of the kingdom of heaven that hopefully as the gospel is taught in that home and modeled in that home, it will just be a short step for them to walk in. It won't be an arduous journey. They have a wonderful, unique, privileged position as they are set apart for the things of the kingdom. That's what we believe is true about our baptized children. We still need to evangelize them. We still need to pray for them. Parents, pray for your child who wears that engagement ring of Christ in baptism. Don't trust the Sunday school teachers to do all the work. You teach them. You read the Scripture to them. You question them in ways that they can understand about what this means as they learn the stories of Scripture. Your desire, parents, as covenant parents, ought to be to see the children of your home come to know the Lord by easy and natural steps so that maybe they never will look back as perhaps you did, and say, I look back on a life where I was walking apart from God and I was given over to love of things that were not godly and God had to stop me in my tracks and turn me around. Your desire should be that that child of yours might one day come before elders of some church and say, why, my being raised in the things of God It was so real and so strong for me that I can't remember not loving Jesus Christ. I can't remember not accepting Him as as God's Son and Savior for all who believe. That's a wonderful testimony. That's a testimony we should desire for our children. Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let me remind you what a proverb is. 
A proverb is a wise saying that observes something that is generally true. I've had parents come along in life when they have a rebellious so-called black sheep son or daughter, and they say, hey, pastor, what about Proverbs 20? You know, I raised up my child in the way he should go, and he's abandoned it. Well, Proverbs is a wise saying about what is generally true. It's not an ironclad promise from God that there are no exceptional cases where covenant children may break the covenant and run away from the Lord. It happens. And when it happens, it happens with tragic results. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But let me remind you that it's also never too late. It's never too late for a covenant heritage to take hold in a life and turn someone back to what they have known and what they have heard. And as parents, we should never stop praying for those we have brought to the Lord and those we have raised up in His ways. The water of baptism is a simple and yet profound symbol of God's promise that He does wash eternally clean every person who He brings to name the name of Christ and look to Him. Baptism primarily declares what God will do because His faithfulness is everlasting. He's the God who promised in Psalm 103, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him, and His righteousness is with their children's children, with all those who keep, cherish, hold on to His covenant. Our Father, we pray that this subject that often seems to divide and cause strife might be one that we could see and understand in a new way. You gave us a command to obey. We pray that we would obey it with joy and not with contentiousness and strife and arguing with one another. Father, I thank you that we are not given some kind of a magical sacrament where water and words wash away sin. Instead, we have that wonderful power of your Holy Spirit that makes men and women and boys and girls new in your time and in your way as they see Christ and trust in him. We thank you for that that great salvation in Jesus' name. Amen.